What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got violinist Tim Fain. I think that struggle is very important because really it's, it's like the incubation at the root of creativity. It's sort of like... How do you get yourself into this wonderful, easy state of, of flow, if you will? This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series, where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Now, before we jump into the show, I want to cover a couple of things. First, I'm really excited to announce our first sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Intel. On Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, please check out World Password Day that Intel is helping to promote. The website is passwordday.org. Second, please consider getting involved with a charity our founders started called Child Rescue that's helping build an aftercare orphanage for child sex trafficking survivors in Cusco, Peru. There's details in the Child Rescue tab from the menu on our site. And last, we have a new free program coming out that teaches entrepreneurs the techniques and the legal checklists that our instructors have used to raise tens of millions of dollars for other companies. If you want early access to the free program, please sign up for free at iCollective.co slash fundraise. Again, iCollective.co slash fundraise. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Tim, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Jess. Thanks a lot, man. It's great to be here. So, um... We have some friends in common, Lindsay Hadley, some other folks who, who I know are big fans of yours. And uh, as we've just recently got to know each other, I, I'm pretty impressed with all these things uh, that you've accomplished so far for a young guy. Um, can you tell us, just for the audience that may not be familiar with your work, let's start with, with some of the highlights career-wise for you. Talk about um, being in the movie uh, Black Swan with Natalie Portman and, and that music and writing for 12 Years as a Slave. And, and some of the, let's start with the feature film side. Um, you started off with B season. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I uh, was ghost playing for Richard Gere who had really, uh, he'd done his homework. He looked great on camera and I really didn't have to do that much. I mean, I, I feel like he really, you know, um, I was able to, he, you know, maybe sound very good on screen and, um, the way that he was, uh, had really dedicated himself to looking like a violinist. Oh, that was great. He um, actually gave me some pretty interesting feedback. He told me to use a little bit less. Uh, we were listening to some takes, and he was like, "You know, I'm not really shaking my hand as much on on camera. Um, it's called vibrato. We use it to sort of thicken up the sound as a, an acoustic player." And I was like, "Wow, that's that's pretty technical, man." I mean, I yes, you're right. Uh, it's Johann Sebastian Bach. I mean, I should use a little more of a kind of a spare sound and we redid it and um and i think we were all really into uh what followed that's a riot and so um did you have quite a bit of interaction with him then yeah i mean we 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 worked uh, i think i think 
um, that by the time we we finished up, we were we were both really satisfied with how how um, you know how it was looking, how it was sounding. The movie, you know, I mean it. it it's a, it's a pretty good movie. I think the book is <laughs> the book is amazing. It's a, it's a beautiful story about a little kid who um, discovers within herself this talent um, at uh, really kind of just navigating spelling bees, and it's almost sort of um, uh, just uh, almost sort of magical uh, process that she goes through. And I think it really uh, the the movie the film captured some of that. Um, but I think what really, for me, I mean, it really opened my eyes. I, when I was a kid, I, I worked in film a bit. I was in a boys choir and we get to, um, I worked for about a week on, uh, kind of an obscure Steven Spielberg, John Williams collaboration called empire of the sun, beautiful choral soundtrack. And I think it was really like, when I think back, I mean, one of the things that I remember most vividly was the, was the, uh, the craft table. I mean, to be honest, it was, it was like one of the first <laughs> times that you? I tasted legit, like New York bagels. I don't know where they got that. I mean, it just like, it was, um, it was really kind of a dream come true for an 11 year old kid. Um, but I do, I do remember just being there. I mean, these were sort of like, I mean, it was like years ago and it was a full orchestra, all sorts of like weird sort of synths and, you know, shakuhachi players and just like, uh, ethnic instruments and three different choirs. And there was John Williams sort of presiding over the whole thing that really kind of, um, I was, I was really just sort of charmed for life, you know? And after B season, I, um, had, had a really great pleasure working with, uh, good old friend of mine, Benjamin Milpied, who I'd worked with a number of times before, um, in different contexts. And he, he, asked me if I wanted to come and meet Darren Aronofsky because they were doing a film with Natalie and the, the two of them weren't, um, uh, they were friends, but, um, this was before they, uh, before they, they hooked up. And I mean, it was really, it felt like the beginning of, of something really kind of incredible and nobody really knew how the film was going to, how it was going to be received, of course. And, um, but I was pretty confident going into this, that this was going to be a really quite unique experience. And I got to, you know, really kind of escape my regular life for about a week filming, uh, you know, spending time on camera with, with these folks. Uh, and that was, that was a very unique experience. People ask me, you know, well, what's it like to play in film? But it's like, what is it like to work in film? Well, I mean, there's really every, every experience I've had has been so different and so unique. I don't really have an answer for that question. Um, there was a moment when Darren had asked me, you know, they wanted to capture Vince Cassell's um, dialogue over my playing for this one scene. And then of course we'd go back in afterwards and re-record. And he was like, you know, can you, can you make, very little sounds. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is not a question that I usually get asked to, but I was like, well, sure. I mean, this, this is kind of a different sort of challenge than I'm usually. And we tried it. And Darren, Darren was like, you know what? No offense, buddy. But like, can you, can you make no sound at all? <laughs> can you just like look like you're playing furiously? And it was this like very intense moment towards the end of the film when I'm up on stage with all the dancers circling around, um, you know, in every direction. 
And uh, so I was like, okay, give me a second. And I just like went and found, um, they, 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 the craft got me a little cup of olive oil and I just put like a couple drops on my spare bow. And really like it was a, it was a silent movie after that for, um, for the rest of the day. Wow. Uh, and uh, so we got the scene and then of course, you know, um, fixed everything up, made it sound and look good and, and post. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever really had an experience like that um, since or before. And I mean, you know, working on 12 Years a Slave was also very different, very unique. For that, I was working very closely with my friend Nicholas Bertel, who... Um, and are these the, the friends two- from Juilliard or, or, or where do you know these people? Oh, I mean, you know, I, I guess uh, from, from New York, uh, these uh, Benjamin, I first worked with him in Lyon, France, um, playing a piece that he choreographed called Double Aria. And uh, we worked the, oh, actually, the, the thing that I remember most from those concerts were just the whole building was colder than I'd ever imagined <laughs> any performance space could ever be. It was actually, uh, it was actually really, I think I, I think I finally, by the third performance, I had three space heaters in my dressing room and, um, just kind of like put on my North face and literally sort of like ran down the stairs to the stage, um, (laughs) to go, to go on for these, for these shows. It was very special though. I mean, working with Benjamin, of course, and this was, I mean, it must've been like 10 years ago at least, uh, Ballet de Lyon. And Nick, Nick, Nicholas Bertel, we've known each other for a very long time, uh, him and his wife, Caitlin. And so we were, we were jointly arranging these, these tunes for, for the diegetic music, for whatever you were going to, whatever you were going to see Chiwetel playing on screen was going to be me performing and really kind of curating in a sense, the direction of the music for for the on-screen performances. And so my friend, so Nicholas and I were, did, I mean, it was really, it was like a research project. It was really like finding what did music of that time sound like? Well, I mean, it was really essentially music in this country around that time was like Scots Irish music. I mean, it really was almost indiscernible from, from that style, but we sort of, we wanted to tweak it just a little bit to really make it feel for ourselves and also for hopefully for people who are watching the film, like this was American music. I mean, whatever that means, but just like for us, I mean, in no way were we going to sort of like even approach blues. I mean, that was like a completely different era, but, but just kind of, just kind of give it a little bit of a sort of a, just a little bit of a kind of like secret sauce. So we just kind of move it, from the realm of Scots Irish into something that felt American. And I feel very pretty pretty lucky in some ways to have been involved in most of the film projects I've been I've worked on. I've been involved right from the script stage or even before. And so we really were able to um you know they had somebody working with Chiwetel in in New Orleans day in and day out for a few hours every day and just getting him ready to look like a fiddle player on screen. And um, I think like the biggest compliment I've gotten for that film was a friend of mine, actually somebody who I know very well, 
I told him that I'd worked on that film. He says, get out, you know, wait. So Chiwetel wasn't playing all of that stuff on screen. <laughs> and I thought that was the biggest compliment I could ever get because it really, I felt like, you know what, maybe we, maybe we did a, a, a good job. Maybe we did a, a, a good job making it look like he, you know, I think like, like the best thing you can do working in that realm is really being invisible in a sense not invisible it's really sort of it's actually it's not in not being invisible it's really maybe more sort of just um providing something that is seamless in mm. the emotive con uh, the emotive like sort immersive of, huh in a way sort of well immersive these days has such a such a um strong connotation for me in a completely different world in the mm. world of virtual reality but i think like just in any project, I think in anything, in any performance, you know, it's it's all the work that you put in, all the work that I've put in since I was a kid, in fact, that really kind of, you hope that it comes together and in that moment, it can feel easy. Things can feel easy. You can approach being on stage or working in a project like 12 Years a Slave. You can approach those moments with a sense of, ease and maybe even fearlessness hmm. i feel like maybe once or twice in my life i've been on stage and i can i can come off and be like wow i felt i almost felt fearless in that moment <laughs> that's fascinating when you think about the the success and the critical acclaim what do you feel like um what do you what do you attribute to that to what why do you think the movie was such an outsized success 12 years of slave well, I mean, leave it to our story to be told by a Brit, you know, I mean, he maybe maybe the fact that he was. I mean, of course, the whole world was was privy to what was going on and was involved in some way. But uh, I don't know, maybe he was able to tell it in a way that was was with a little bit less attachment hmm. to the story itself. I think a great deal of the movie's success, of course, is due to, um, well, of course, to, to Steve's vision, but also to the actors involved, people, um, I mean, without, with almost no exceptions, I mean, just the performances in that movie are really um, so captivating and powerful and disturbing. You know, I mean, it, it just just really touched on something very deep and and necessary and uh, for for resonated where, with people where we were maybe maybe it just it was the right time it was just a, a really masterful film and and it was the right time for that maybe hmm. well you, you touched on something else i wanted to cover um this virtual reality thing with Google. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, that uh, I feel like um, the last couple of years, I've intentionally really put myself in harm's way as far as just <laughs> being as much uh, a part of that world and at the center of what is going on and what people are, are thinking about. Um, in a way, you know, I I'd read um, Jerome Lernier's book a while back uh you are not a gadget i don't know if you had a chance to check that out it's kind of no, old school it sounds and, great 
and and Jerome um, is, I mean, he's been, in a way, sort of, in some ways, quietly, sort of at the forefront of of what's happening in virtual reality. A bit of a sort of a naysayer of Silicon Valley, um, incredibly embracing of technology, but also I think um, really blowing the whistle a little bit as well. I think it's really important to have people like, like Jaron kind of writing books like you are not a gadget with the idea being just more and more, it's tempting to approach our gadgets like beings and conversely to approach our, our friends and our loved ones like machines. Um, you know, if my wife doesn't, um, you know, do something that I asked her to do, or if I don't, if I don't take out the trash when I said I was going to, a computer would have done that. I mean, a computer wouldn't have forgotten. Uh, my phone wouldn't have gotten <laughs> distracted. And what does that mean for, for to, I think it can be incredibly harmful to relationships. Um, if we're not very careful to, um, use our technology in the way that it's best suited, but to really not expect more from it than it can actually give us. Hmm. I mean, except in our wildest dreams. And I think it's don't in any way mistake what I'm saying to mean that I don't think we should expect that in the future technology can provide more and more for us. But in a way, what is, what is really the thing that I want most from my technology? Well, it's to save save time for me to give back to me all of the time that I would otherwise lose doing the things that my phone and my computer can do for me. But actually, you know what? It's the exact opposite because of this, the latency inherent latency, in my computer and my phone the spinning pizza of death. You know, it's like all of a sudden I actually, the way that it is, is actually the phone, my phone takes time away from me actually makes my days shorter and that's a real battle that's a real it's a possible danger so i think anyways working with 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 jaron the two of us had a chance to collaborate recently we we did a sort of a a free improv it was actually it was jaron myself and composer philip glass and it was out at the henry miller library in big sur and we really just sort of lost ourselves in this free improv he's actually a fantastic musician um, Jaron, he's got something like like two thousand different, very unique um, flute instruments, like wind instruments, hmm. in his place in Berkeley. This big guy, dreadlocks down to his waist, um, and just the sweetest sweetest guy. Very passionate musician. So, anyways, we, um, I guess you could say, like I've really been fascinated with this world for many many years, but it really feels like the last couple of years that. Um, through collectives and organizations like Future of Storytelling and the New Frontiers Festival down at Sundance, uh, which actually this piece that I that I worked on with Google called Resonance was showing down at Sundance this past this past January at New Frontiers, which was pretty exciting. Um, and we really is really is really in a way. Um, Jessica Brillhart, uh, who's now the principal filmmaker for Cardboard at Google, 
had asked me to write a piece for violin and orchestra. And she felt like she really, well, you know, we both actually really kind of got a kick out of making the music completely within the realm of acoustic instruments. And to use that, um, this very acoustic setting, to put that, or the very acoustic sound, rather, to put that within an incredibly modern context, namely a piece of virtual reality that was going to unveil to the world YouTube's new capability for 360 VR stereoscopic content. And that happened in early November. And the piece really explores the kind of like um, creation of a tune, uh, the sort of the beginnings and um, And beginnings of a a piece of music, almost as if it's happening in my mind. Yeah. Well, and we'll, we'll put a link to it on your show notes. Anybody who's listening to this, just come to Tim's page on Ideation Collective and you know, we'll have links like to the book, You Are Not a Gadget, and, and to this. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, the stereoscopic, stereoscopic uh, yeah. on, on um, YouTube, basically they're going to want to look at this on an iPhone or something like this where they can physically move the device in their hand. And is that correct? That's what we're talking about? Yeah, I, you can view it in, in different ways. I mean, hopefully it'll work for all you guys. It's Ideally, if you have um, a cardboard, if you have the headset, and if you subscribe to the New York Times, chances are you got one in the mail a couple months ago. Um, stick your phone into it. It's a little buggy on iOS, um, so if you've got an Android, um, it should be pretty seamless. And the idea is you put on the headsets, um, put in your, your headphones, and it's like you're there. You can look at me performing, or you can turn your head around. There's a moment on a, where it cuts to a farm you can look behind you and look at the chickens or you can look at the end of the last scene you can look all around you and see you know the 35 other orchestra players in avatar studios in new york city um as a sort of like culmination of this this song in my imagination and then it sort of retreats back into you know my quote bedroom you know at, mm-hmm. at dusk um I was sort of like, well, what, did it actually happen? Was this sort of like yeah. all sort of in my imagination? Well, and as opposed to, you know, Oculus Rift or, or something like this, which is going to be much more of a hardware investment, we'll put the link on here too where people can just order. If they don't have a Google Cardboard, they can just order it. I think it's, what, $23 or something like that. Yeah, or go down to Google and they might even just give you one for free. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, what what was that like working with Google as opposed to your feature film work? What what was the difference in those two projects? What did they what were they like? Well, in a way, uh, the or were they Google similar? On, well, no. I think working working with Google on this, I really felt like they gave me just a huge amount of flexibility and latitude, creatively speaking, to just do whatever I wanted to do. Um, it was really like, well, we, you know, we're, th- we'd love to create a music video, a virtual reality music video for one of your songs. And we're thinking like to keep it in the realm of, like I said, sort of acoustic instruments. We'd like it to start off very simply, gradually build up to a very full texture, full orchestra, and then quickly sort of just like it, almost like it never happened. And, um, and is this just an email or is this, they knew somebody you knew? What, what? Oh, 
Well, I was I was in touch with um, a few people at Google, and particularly, like I said, my friend Jessica Brillhart, who is now the um, principal filmmaker at, at Google Cardboard, and um, she was still working for Google Creative, I believe, at the time she asked me to do this, and um, it was really, I mean, really her vision in a way. She's the director for Resonance, and um, has since been involved in some really beautiful, beautiful projects, um, in the realm of VR. But, um, yeah, it was really, really a collaboration. And and so in that way, it felt like, I mean, I could almost like do whatever I wanted musically. And then Mm -hmm. we were working together on the, the storyboard, you know, it was like, well, do any particular locations really grab you? And of course, working, working with a, a company like that was really, I never felt like, I never felt like there were any limitations on if we wanted to do something. And if, if Jessica really wanted to achieve a particular effect, well, then it was like just done, you know, I mean, it was really, um, there was a, there was great support for this piece within, within Google cardboard. And that was really satisfying to work, um, in a way that, um, the only limitations were really going to be like my own, the, the limitations of my own ability and my, my own, uh, sort of my, myself, you know? Yeah. So that, that was pretty satisfying. Um, and I think great, you know, really fun for me to also put the music and the texture, the string orchestra texture that I, you know, for sure. I mean, I work, uh, in, in a lot of different realms, you know, I think that in a way, like, I sometimes wonder how, how do I put everything I do into a nice, neat little box, but, but it was satisfying to come back to an acoustic texture and put that, like I said, sort of in the world of just what is happening in technology right now. I think for me, the biggest, my biggest, the biggest challenge I think for create, for creating in that realm is how do you, how do you do this in a way that people can forget about the technology. And of course you've got this big, bulky, terrible thing on your face. You've got headphones in your ears. It's, it's, it's like, but somehow it still, it still works. I mean, I can't wait for the moment when this phone that I'm holding in my hand talking to you just right now, I mean, I can just, I can get rid of that. Like we won't have phones anymore. I won't have, this, these bulky headsets, it'll just be seamless. And I think that's the moment when like we can really lose ourselves and there's great potential for creating something beautiful. Of course, I mean, I'm not going to wait till that moment. We're going to do our best <laughs> until that moment arrives. Okay. So, you know, you, you think about this link here, youtube.com slash Tim Fane music, right? Do people expect somebody, you know, as you know, classically trained as accomplished as you, do they expect this much, this much thought you put into tech? Do you surprise a lot of other people with, with this level of thinking you've put into this? Um, if they don't, uh, if they don't know me too well, I, a few years back, I, Oh, Tim, yeah. Tim, hey, can you hear us? There? Yeah, we're, there? we're losing you just a little bit. I think, uh, uh Skype yeah. is sabotaging us. You want to, <sighs> How's that? <laughs> oh, you're back. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. We'll just, we'll just cut that out. Um, yeah, okay. I'll have my editor cut Do that out. Do the question again. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, you're classically trained. You've got so much experience. Do people, it, are, do you surprise other people with this level of thought that you bring about tech? I'm sure. I'm sure I do. Uh, but not, not unless you really don't, unless you don't know me. I, I think like a few years back, I produced this piece called Portals, which was an evening length show, a live show. Uh, richly collaborative, um, involved um, the poetry and prose of Leonard Cohen, uh, my friend Benjamin Milpied. I'd asked him to choreograph and direct and film some uh, uh, three dancers that um, went along to a piece that Philip Glass had just written for me back then uh, called Partita for Solo Violin. And a couple of other living composers, Nico Muley, um, you see him on screen, the three dancers. There's a pianist you see on screen, but I'm the only live performer. I'm the only musician. I'm the only um, person who's there in the flesh. And that was part of what I wanted to explore is really what my place is as a performer in the digital age, like what that means to be a live performer. And Do you feel think- like you came to any conclusions having... Well, I think, the, I think like the <laughs> my biggest one of my biggest fears in going into the premiere of that, uh, which was in New York City, was uh, is this actually going to work? Like, what does it mean to be spontaneous as a performer? Like, what, like to feel free on stage? Like, is that really? Am I going to feel very locked in, very boxed in, um, playing to? playing music that is intended to the effect is in, of this music is intended to be very free. And I clicked it out and like really kind of worked on trying to give it a sense of freedom and a sense of, um, a sense of flexibility so that I could really fly in those moments while at the same time being absolutely locked in. And so I think it was very satisfying to discover, well, actually that, that can actually, that can kind of work. And that maybe, a feeling of being spontaneous is not actually doing something wildly different from anything you've ever done before on stage, but it's actually really kind of a culmination of everything that you've been working for. And a sense, the sense of freedom comes from an openness and um, just an openness of spirit and a sense of fearlessness that is really more um, a feeling of everything coming together than a quality of doing something that you've completely different than you've absolutely ever done before. There's a place for that as well, but within portals, uh, I was happy to know that, you know, know, it actually could kind of work, but what I thought was most satisfying from that run uh, from those performances and actually still get asked to do that show from time to time. Now we are toured all over the world with that. Um, and when I say we, I mean like mm, myself and everybody on screen <laughs> and my, um, and my, my tech guy, like it was a very light show to travel with, as you can imagine. But the mo- one of the most satisfying things I, I got from that was people would come up to me afterwards and be like, wow, you know, i I totally forgot that for a long stretch, I totally forgot that the pianist wasn't actually there on stage <laughs> with you. Or I totally forgot. And, you know, I'd worked very closely with um, with my co-producer who directed many of the films within Portals as well, working closely with Benjamin Milpied. Um, 
uh, Kate and I really designed, we tried to design a lot of the films to look as if, you know, the pianist and the piano was going to be more or less sort of life-size, very slow tracking shots that allowed people to hopefully to just close their eyes and forget that they were in this technological sort of multimedia experience and really just come back to music as concert music, as pure sonic experience. And so that was very, I think, very terrifying, but also very satisfying for me to hear that people were able to really forget that everybody else wasn't actually there on stage with me. And of course, in New York, everybody was actually in the audience. So by the end of the show, everybody during the curtain calls, everybody, I brought everybody up onto the stage. There were like 30 people up there mm-hmm. with me who'd helped me create this show. Um, and what year was that? That was, oh my gosh, what year was that? I mean, that was, uh, um, I want to say September. Well, it, it premiered, um, it premiered in September of, uh, 2011 i believe no 2012 it was um good god jess you're gonna make me look this up on the internet as we're talking (laughs) it's it's okay but it kind of plays into this thing so i'm thinking about um you know when we met at the impact house event at sundance yeah. Uh, I kind of feel like you lived up. To, I'm re, I'm looking at this title from a Vogue magazine article about you. It says classical music gets a modern update in the hands of violinist Tim Fain. And I got to tell you, uh, I I uh, I know you were supposed to be a surprise guest at the event, but it had kind of leaked that you were going to perform there. And uh, <laughs> and this so was down at down at Sundance. It, yeah. And yeah, so okay. And so um, I. I just was not expecting a dude in tennis shoes to jump up on the coffee table and start playing. Uh, is this something that you do intentionally or is it just what seems like fun or, um, just sort of pop out, pop out of the crowd from nowhere and just kind of start shredding. Yeah. Well, I and mean, not, not maybe, you know, it, it's not necessarily the, uh, the guy in the tuxedo. Everybody is, you know, hushed like we're at a golf event, you know, well, you know, I think like that's funny because um, Jessica uh, from uh, the director of the Google piece, Resonance, um, said the same th- thing. She wanted she wanted to capture that. And you know, my my friend Hajin um, is a, a wonderful. We've worked together. She styled me for just many things, and I just love just a beautiful person and wonderful to work with. Um, and I think we all were sort of just um, kind of kind of just uh, really into the idea of just kind of doing this like very unassuming, you know, I'm wearing just a t-shirt and jeans, just like I would probably normally wear like around the house. And the way that Jessica brought that costume into the different locations. Well, when I'm on the farm, my sleeves rolled up a little bit and chewing on a piece of grass and in the, um, in the church, you know, in the cathedral, I've rolled my cuffs down a little bit, you know, sort of like, and then in the final scene with the orchestra, I've thrown on a black sport jacket over, over my otherwise very informal costume. So I think, uh, but I mean, I, I guess like, I mean, I can't really, 
I mean, I think like at a certain point you better be, be ready to just be yourself. Right. I mean, everybody else is taken. So, I mean, I feel like <laughs> I'm going to just be who, who I am and hopefully that's just going to feel, you know, I mean, I have, I have no choice really. I think like, I guess maybe there's growing up in Southern California, there was a bit of informality. I was approached going on stage as kind of just like this wonderful, of course, very heightened, but wonderful kind of extension of just the rest of my life. It had to be. Why else would I, would I keep doing it? You know, I mean, it has to feel, it has to feel natural. It has to feel, and of course to do it well and to do it so that I can walk off stage and feel like, yes, I want to do that again. It takes a lot of work as well. Sure. And a lot of work that times can feel a bit thankless. All this, um, you know, the, 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 the work that, um, you know, you sometimes, um, it feels like a struggle, but I think that struggle is very important because really it's, it's like an incubation. It's like you have, well, you know, like the incubation at the root of creativity. It's sort of like, how do you get yourself into this wonderful, easy state of, of flow, if you will? I don't know. The answer is I don't know. Actually, <laughs> the answer is I really. <laughs> and conclusively, I don't know. we have decided. I don't, I don't know. know. And that's that's why I am superstitious. That's why I do everything I can to <clears throat> prepare for those moments, to prepare my mind for the possibility of even just a hint of of that feeling of flow, um, because it's so great. Because it is so so satisfying and so just necessary for who I am. And, and it validates all of the other moments of shit, you know, and just, and work. And not that I don't enjoy the work. In fact, I do. And it's possible to really get into the flow of the actual work itself. But there's, there's no mistaking that for the moments when I get up on tables or on stages in front of people and am able to share. Um, so yes, I, I do get up on tables. I do, uh, enjoy getting on stage and I, and I think there's, uh, there's some, there's nothing like it, you know? And, and that was it. That was a particularly special moment. I felt like I was just surrounded, um, with friends and, um, it was just like crazy weather outside and everybody was huddled around the fire in this. I mean, there were a lot of people. It was a big, it was a big fire in a big living room. There were a lot of people there, but, uh, it was, it was a special moment. I'm so glad that we were there together. So yeah, it was a riot. Um, I want to ask you more about that, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear about our sponsor and then come right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Intel, and when they approached me about being a sponsor, it was easy to say yes, and not just because they're a $140 billion company. In 2012, Intel created World Password Day to help make us all safer online, and they've been really successful with it. The first year, they graded over a million passwords, meaning they tested them and told you how long it would take before it could be cracked. And then they managed to get other big organizations like Dell and Microsoft to join the movement as well. 
Personally, I think this is something legitimately good for all innovators and entrepreneurs, since we're not just trying to protect our own companies and bank accounts, but most of us interact with our customers online at some point. And if they don't feel safe, it just makes that interaction harder. Something else I think is interesting has to do with how on the show we're always talking about how a good idea isn't enough and how innovators need to be unique in attracting people to what they're doing. I think these guys have done some things that the rest of us can learn from. I was actually there four years ago when they launched this idea with essentially an outdoor pop-up event, downtown Manhattan at the Flatiron Building. And it was interesting how they made it fun to care if your password was easy to crack or not. They had this big carnival game booth where they let people swing those big hammer things that you ring a bell and can win prizes. But there was a catch. The size of hammer you might get to use to try for the prizes went from the huge looking thing you're thinking of from a Popeye cartoon down to a regular household hammer, which was way harder. Uh, The way it got picked is because you went up to the booth and put in a password on the keyboard that's like your password, and then it graded how long it would take someone to crack your password. Some of them were super long, some of them were short. Basically, if it was really hard to crack your password, you got this huge hammer, which made it easy to win prizes. And if your password was super easy to crack, you got a tiny household hammer. Well, this attracted tons of people passing by because everyone was at the booth was laughing about either how bad their password was or some big linebacker-sized guy who's trying to ring the bell with a tiny hammer. After after your turn, everybody got uh, a big thing of blue cotton candy uh, for free. And so there's all these people walking around with big smiles and blue cotton candy, and it really caught on and then caught on online. Uh, I'll post a video about it on today's interview page. The thing is, I'm not the most security-conscious guy, and it actually worked on me. I started using passwords that were longer, a whole sentence with spaces in it, things like that. And this year, what the push is, is something right along with something the president just talked about in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. They usually call it multi-factor authentication. It's when you add like a fingerprint or a face scan or a text code, depending what your device will let you do, so that it's a password plus something else to keep your device safe and your information safe. Um... When my buddy was getting me to do this on my Gmail account, uh, Gmail calls it two-step verification. He used to be the network security guy for Stanford University. The thing that really put me over the top was when he was like, Jess, what is your liability and like, what's your reputation loss going to be if you end up leaking sensitive client data? Like, It's one thing to lose your stuff, but what if you lose your client's stuff because you didn't do something as simple as, as multi-factor authentication, which really sounds like a mouthful, but really works. Also, there's a funny celebrity that got involved this year. They're not letting anybody say who it is, but on Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, um, May 5th, they're going to be announcing it and putting out all the videos on PasswordDay.org. So check them out and support Intel for supporting the show. Now back to the interview. Well, I feel like I kind of want to talk about a couple of things you've touched on. Um, This idea of the root of creativity and then one of the other topics that I feel has come up a couple of times in this conversation is the concept. Which is T.S. Eliot, by the way. Okay. I think. Yeah, T.S. Um, <laughs> and uh, this concept you've touched on a couple of times as we've been talking, this idea of fearlessness. Um, and my first question is, do you feel like there's an intersection between advanced creativity and, and a sense of fearlessness? Yeah, I think there has to be. Um for me at least it really i get i get i think like like really the way to approach that is through 
work in a way. There's nothing that's really gonna that's really gonna take you places those places except for the kind of work that I mean you got I mean everybody needs a little bit of a little bit of a boost a little bit of like you need to you need to be able to sit back and watch and be like yes that is working that is feeling really great you know it's sort of the kind of confidence that that comes from not like success necessarily in terms of you know like numbers of followers but just like success in terms of just like the satisfaction of seeing what you're doing um actually work Mm. so um and feeling like it's just really you know the moments like i always feel like if i'm recording or working um on a project in my studio if i can go to sleep wake up in the morning play the track and really feel like it gets me then i know that that i've maybe arrived at something so fearlessness really gets i do feel like it's all there is a great intersection between um fearlessness confidence and really um this idea of flow and the work as incubating these sort of these moments that one hopes can sort of just leap out when (laughs) when you want them to of course they they rarely do you know (laughs) but uh a a few times i think i can remember feeling feeling fearless on stage and that's it's very uh very memorable you know, I'm in the middle of reading the Mihai Csikszentmihalyi book Flow right now. Oh yeah, sure. Um, and it is uh, I don't know. He he has such a interesting approach to it of its its value for its own sake, not for not just for the outcome. Um, yeah. that I'm really identifying with. Have you read the book before? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I I think um, it's beautiful to to approach it that way. Um, and in a way, it's always there's always there's always something great to, to come back to creating just for yourself. And when I was a kid, I remember a very specific feeling of just enjoyment in arriving at a sense of I could really well, not only in the violin, I mean, I was doing so many other things just in my play, you know, um, children. And sometimes as adults, I think we can can really experience a sense of infinite play, play that doesn't have a beginning or an end or, um, in a sense, uh, for its own sake. Um, and uh, I think I will always probably to some degree approach that a little bit differently, though, in, a, in that I love sharing. I feel like sharing for me is really kind of the, it has to be in some ways the end of all of this, giving it away, giving it away, whether it's giving it away to just spirit of, of humanity or giving it away to my kids or to a whole crowd of people out um, in a hall or in wherever, or, or sending it off on the internet and allowing it to live and breathe up, up in cyberspace. I think that 
act of giving it away um, is is very important for me. And so I think I'll always probably view a state of flow or or the act of, of creation of creating a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, our conversation we had a few days ago when we were talking about doing this, I felt like um, I felt like we were kind of edging into something that I don't have great words for, but I feel like as a visual artist, I identify with a lot. This idea oh, yeah. of like, I don't know, uh, like there's there's creativity in the sense of like, uh, I'm doing something that hasn't been done before, but it's almost like the more... I can dive into it and the, like if I can get some uninterrupted time to, to work on it and come back to it and come back to it and come back to it, that it's almost like peeling back the layers of the onion. And I find like, uh, like more access to that flow type experience. But I also find like, uh, some sort of like inherent joy. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like not very eloquent about this topic, but I feel like there's like an inherent joy, but there's also like um, some sort of like additional genius that gets released that it doesn't feel like it actually came from me, but I was kind of like the conduit that it happened through. I don't know if that sounds like gibberish, but do you mm. identify with that at all? Yeah, sometimes it does feel as if these moments come as a gift from from without. Um, I love your, your talking about, I mean, what sounds to me like, um, just how I would define this, the peeling back the layers of the onion, I, which I love, um, as just cultivating the art of concentration is something that I talk to my kids about. It's like, what's the most important skill that you're going to learn, whether or not you learn it in school or not is concentration. Probably. I mean, what else do we have? I mean, the best things make no mistake. I mean, the best things that are going to happen to you in life are going to happen to you when you're alone. And I mean, through this solitude, you will unveil and sort of release your own powers of concentration, which are all like within you to start. It's not something that, but I will say that, yes, from time to time, it, it feels like a little bit of a, it can feel like a little, you know, a flash from beyond, from somewhere. And, um, well, I don't know how to explain that. I don't really, I don't really, I can't, I don't really have any explanation or anything or, or, <laughs> or even, I don't, I don't even feel comfortable, you know, really, I just, I, the only thing, I think the only thing to do in those moments is just to be incredibly open and allow yourself to listen and allow yourself to just be a witness to what the power of the human mind. Yeah. You know, um, I'm thinking a lot about this statement that you said about the power of concentration. And I think just from my entrepreneurial background, uh, so often the people I spend time with, they talk about the value of tenacity of grit of, of the resilience to get back up after you've been knocked down and, and these type of things. But as you were saying that, it really made me think about um, about like the statement that you made, this, this power of concentration. I think about books like uh, Think and Grow Rich from Napoleon Hill from 100 years ago or whatever. 
And like the book isn't labeled work hard and grow rich, you know? And, and yet, um, so many of us are so busy, like the, this mentor of mine, he was, a a bureau chief at the Bureau of Public Debt. And he talked about how, um, most of the managers he worked with or that worked for him suffered from the tyranny of the to-dos list. (laughs) And, And it's like all these ringing phones, all these fire alarms going off, but not necessarily the important thing. And, uh, and as you're, I don't know. It's just kind of hitting me here thinking about like, no, like the best breakthroughs actually are <laughs> preceded by concentration a lot of times. That is <laughs> as interesting to tell me more about this. When you talk to your kids about it or when you actively try to cultivate, um, you know, your concentration muscle, what give give some insights for the rest of uh, us. Well, the best, best things. Yeah. I mean, can, uh, can follow intense concentration or, or sleep I feel like, uh, hmm. can, can, uh, for me, uh, they off, often, and look, I mean, I, I'm talking like I have great, great experience with like <laughs> these, these magical moments of flow. I mean, sure. I mean, it, you, you kind of like end up living for these moments, but I, in no way do I really understand how to grow them, how to cultivate them. But I, I think I, through a sense of a sense of what is how they've happened in the past and superstition, uh, one can kind of um, try in some way to cultivate them. And I do feel for myself, actually, I find that they can tend to to come after after moments of rest, in fact, that have followed moments of great concentration. Um, does that make sense? Like, like Actually, it, scientifically it does. There's a lot of great research come out that's come out in the last few years about high performers and their protection of sleep and, and how above average performers sleep hardly at all, but the top performers sleep a lot. And, <laughs> and that's that funny. How, yeah. how much, you know, the brain in its, in its quest to seek efficiency, how much um, different parts of the brain light up during sleep and process what's happened in our, you know, our frontal lobe, our neocortex. So there's there's a bunch of brain science that would support what you just said. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that scientists that, that science um, has proven has, has finally just, caught up to you. I'm glad that science has finally caught up to Tim. <laughs> no, I, I I know what you're saying, Justin. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, before the act of, we were talking before about performance and the act of, um, the act of sharing and the act of, uh, those, those moments, I think, I mean, in a way, like, like here's sort of (laughs) my process, if you can call it that it's like, I need, yes, I do need to rest. I do need those periods of rest and sleep particularly. Once, um, once I, once that, once I sort of, I I can, I feel like I've had this, this, um, this moment, this flash of a melody or, um, a sense that I know how a composition that I'm writing or how a cue is going to fit into a film or how then at that point I feel like, okay, I'm going to, I need to hold on to that. And it's like, at that point I will stay up all night 
mm. for a few days on end sometimes, just fleshing that out, making it into something. Um, I remember, Philip, um, I was uh, <laughs> actually really great pleasure talking with Philip Glass about how he writes and how he does this. And, he, well, he gets up in the morning and he just starts. I mean, where else are you going to start? You start at the beginning and just work. And he was, he, he, his, his thought was, well, may, there may be a lot of people out there who are able to visualize and to feel and to understand the totality of a work of art or a creation or even compose within their minds a symphony or a beautiful melody or something that's really, or a beat that's going to just like get people up on their feet. Um, but they don't have maybe the tools to hold on to that to such an extent that they can get it down onto paper or into mm. pro tools or, or down on, you know, um, just on, on, uh, you know, uh, to, to paint it, to, to create it, to the visualization, the sense of concentration and visualization as a skill to hold on to that to such an extent that they can, that we can notate it, that we can save it, that we can put it down into physical, tangible form or perform it on a stage or in such a way that other people can enjoy it that we can share it with the rest of the world and i can i can only imagine that could be very frustrating when i was a little kid i remember feeling frustrated feeling um unhappy in a sense that i would hear these really great riffs and beats and just like on my kids records you know, somebody playing piano, just like in a, just a really like, um, enticing sort of way that just, I wanted to do that. And I couldn't, I couldn't get my hands to obey, you know, the, the spirit of what I wanted to create. <laughs> and well, I think that is something that, um, we all are, are working towards and hopefully, um, can really approach that in some way. Yeah. You know, um, shifting gears a bit, uh, we always ask guests uh, if they had advice for us at Child Rescue, trying to get the word out about, you know, trying to get more people involved in rescuing children from exploitation. Um, but I, I kind of want to go a little bit different uh, direction with you specifically because of your work with this movie, um, The Untouchable. Uh, no, Untouchable, Children of, and then the bylines, Children of God. Can you tell us about this documentary you help? Yeah, I, um, Grant Nisley, the director, had asked me to, um, to compose the music for this. And this was a, a few years back. And I understand the, the film has just gotten uh, picked up by Discovery Communications. So i um, really excited for Grant. And uh, I really hope that that will really help to raise awareness and really kind of be a part. This film can be a part of, of what is bringing this issue to, to the fore. And it really working on the film really opened my eyes to what was happening, not only 
Uh, the film focuses on the lives of two young girls who have recently been rescued and their stories. And um, and is it in India or Nepal? Tell me again. The, the... yeah, these are um, it's 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 about the body people, Nepal, and and these two girls who were kidnapped and taken to GB Road and forced to um, uh, forced to be to be prostitutes as young young children and uh, really horrific stories. Uh, but but I think beautiful. The the story, their stories are are beautiful in in because of the redemptive quality and just but but it's incredibly sad and and terrible um, to think that um, these these children weren't able to live in peace and to fulfill their dreams and to live and to um, really just they were really. Weren't, didn't have the option, in a way, to enter society um, in the way that that they should be able to. Yeah, you know, and, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm interrupting. Finish your thought. No, no, it's good. Well, I just I'm so impressed. I, you know, we are, are usually asking people what advice would you have for us to get more people more to care, and I feel like you've actually done that here, where you've brought your talents to a film that shows this. You know. Um, it's so it's so often when people get involved in this specific issue that a lot of times the the horrificness the the hard parts of the issue get focused on. Um, but I'm fascinated by what what these guys seem to have done. That uh, we have seen such success when they show the success stories, when they show the individual that beats the odds. That is the thing, you know. The story with with my mother in law being trafficked as, as a twelve year old in Santa Monica, California, and then yeah, going on to have this American dream of a family and and beating yeah. the odds. Those are the things that get people and politicians and soccer moms and and dads to to say not only that's so terrible because they'll say that if you tell them a bad story, but when you tell them the successes, they say, "I want to be a part of that. I want to be part of more successes happening." So my well, my true. hats off to you guys to showing the redemptive stories and, and uh, profiling that, that it's not a lost cause that it, you know, it's an issue that could be beaten. Well, it's not. And I think Jess, I mean, it's, it's true. We can, I know I can relate to um, one person's story so much better than I can relate to a whole cause that, that involves a whole people or a, not that, that, it's 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 less important, but that it just hearing these personal stories, while at the same time realizing, of course, that it's incredibly rare. Um, these success stories are very rare, unfortunately, and that's why I've also um, really honored to be involved with other groups like Nexus, like Made in a Free World, um, that are also helping to work to eradicate human slavery um, from the other end, not not only to rescue yeah. these kids, but also to really kind of focus on how we can make this less um, of a successful economic, I mean, because it really is, it's, it's I mean, second only to the drug trade, uh, huge amounts of money. Um, and the, one of the only ways that we can really eliminate this is to go after um, money yeah is to eliminate the demand 
is to teach to teach teach young boys about um, not about the, the, yeah the terrible pornography that they're going to see as eight and nine year olds on the internet. You know, to teach them about 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 that, to teach them about respect for women and girls, and and I think I think it's especially having. I don't know, two, two young girls of my own, my wife and I, um, I just more than ever feel like this is one of the, the things that I just want to focus on. I would love to see, uh, to work on a project in the realm of virtual reality to take people into, I don't know. I mean, as horrific as it sounds, virtual reality can be such a powerful tool um, a journalistic tool, take people into that shipping crate. Well, what is this like for this kid who is, you know, trafficked, um, across the ocean? What is it like to, to be in the home in Santa Monica? It's happening in, under yeah, our noses. To the American kid where nobody, nobody yeah. thinks, Oh, well, they think it's only happening to the foreign kids. So they're not looking at this runaway or this foster care kid or somebody that slipped through the cracks. Right. Yeah. yeah to take people into that experience in a way that may be disturbing, but it also might really get people to share in an understanding and a passion to, to join, to join us yeah, yeah. and whatever we can do to really, um, to really put an end to it. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up your fatherhood in connection with this. So many of my friends, you know, we've been working on this. It's so close to our, our heart, you know, it's so close to our family. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I look at my different friends that have have joined over over these six years at different parts and got involved in different ways, and it's interesting the role of fatherhood specifically in my friends and their involvement. Um, yeah. You know, I've got a couple of girls and a couple of boys, right? And I think about I think about it for similar issues to you, and it's funny you talk about these these young boys and preparing them to be exposed to pornography. It's like it's such a taboo issue because you know, Comedy Central or so-and-so makes pornography just think, make it sound like it's just a joke. But when you look at the science, I mean, I, I've, got a, I've got a nine-year-old boy, right? And when you look at the science of what chemically happens in the brain with the exposure to those images, um, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, we send kids to school with these smartphones, and it's a little bit like they could just have a hit of drug with one more thumb click, you know? Hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can prepare your kid as much, but it's like being a defensive driver about the other parents who maybe haven't been educated, don't realize what's happening to their son that's sitting with your son at, at the cafeteria because they sent a smartphone. So it'll be easier to pick the kid up from school at the end of the day, you know, and it's a little bit back to your previous issue of adjusting to technology and how it's affecting our lives. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I certainly think about it a lot as a parent of both, what's going to happen to my boys. Cause there's, there's no way if, if I ever let them have an email account, if you ever let them have a Facebook or a Pinterest page, <laughs> like there's just no way that they can not be exposed in this world. I mean, they probably already even have one, you know, we right? don't even know about it, you know? <laughs> and I think in, especially in these days, you know, to see how hardcore pornography has really so violent, so is becoming very mainstream and that's, it's troubling. I think and to see, um, and what you about know, the what boys who could, are going to date our daughters? Well, I'm interrupting. You go first. Well, no, I mean, I'm just thinking, what if we could raise a generation of 
kids who understand how pernicious this medium is and how and how uh, and really understand more about what it is and the qualities of of this which um and how how dangerous it can be in terms of how uh, it can affect one and really change one's the makeup of one's brain chemistry in a way that um, I think essentially really can inhibit one from being happy. I think it, it really it, it it's um, how can one really be truly happy when it's at the expense of the rest of humanity. Mm. You know, I look at these polit- or these uh, folks in the entertainment industry that I, I kind of look up to for taking a stand on this. And again, I'm thinking about what are the teenage boys like that are going to want to take my daughters on dates and what, what's been their experience? How's their brain, brain been wired, <laughs> right? Yeah, you're and, polishing up your shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you look at guys like whether it's Terry Crews or um, uh, Russell Brand. Did you see, I got to tell you, I love that Russell Brand thing where he goes off about how, um, he, how, how unhelpful he felt like pornography was to his life and how, how unhelpful it is to the, the happiness of families and the happiness of individuals and how it's not, how it's fake love. It's not real and it's not helpful. Well, I think it's, yeah, beyond even being not real. I mean, a a film, a great film is also not real, but it, it goes, Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. When he, it's like, he just, yeah, it's like, beyond not real because yeah. it's misleading, right? Well, it, yeah, it really, I think it can, and I think it really does, it, it is for me all tied into how we approach technology and what we were talking about before. It does, it can really um, provide a very skewed sense of, of our interaction with the world at, well, the, at its best. I mean, there really is nothing good about it. So, I mean, it's... Yeah. No, I feel like, in some ways, as a society, we're making great strides as far as less violence against women, less tolerant of husbands that abuse their wives. You know, like the last couple of decades, we've made some great progress on some of those things. Um, and I just think it takes, you know, it's going to take some people to not lose that ground because of digital things like this, right? Well, you know, let's just talk about it. Let's just put it out in the open. Let's talk about Let's talk about It's very, I mean, it's difficult to talk about like how our kids are going to what they're going to see online, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about the fact that, um, much of the, you know, the eyeshadow that my, that my daughter wears, um, the silica and the eyeshadow may have been mined by, by kids who, Mm. who, who are not, are are essentially being forced into the same age as our daughters. Yeah. They may be the same age. Yeah, exactly. I mean, let's talk about these issues. So let's let's talk about the fact that that young people are being trafficked right out from under our noses in this country. Um, and I think that's why I, I really admire what you're doing, Jess, and just really providing an opportunity to to talk about these things that may be very difficult, but I think ultimately are, it's very necessary for us to be doing this. I will say um, I. Sometimes I get depressed when I see the ways that the media can dehumanize others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But I am so encouraged when I talk to people like you, you know, and uh, I and I and it's like once someone will go first, all of a sudden you start hearing about all these other people. 
that want to care about humans too. And like, I remember when we were talking at Sundance and you were talking about uh, this issue and kind of how you felt like your work on 12 Years as a Slave related to it. Um, and it was actually kind of, I don't know, inspirational to me. Yeah, I mean, well, we, oh man, working on the film, just like really deep into what what it means to be a slave. And, and, and granted, there are, there are types of slavery that are much more horrific than others. And I think what is, what was described in the film clearly just in every way, horrific and, and terrible. And there, there are much less obvious ways as well. Just, but what, what are the ways in which I am, enslaved enslaved to my phone enslaved to ideas enslaved to ideology that i grew up with which can be incredibly difficult to shake um yeah i really started to just hit me that we are can be can be defined by the ways in which we are enslaved and that really that really, um, that really frightened me in a way, <laughs> in a way that, um, was part of why I produced this show portals we were talking about before. How, what are the ways in which we are enslaved to our own phones, to the, to the idea that, um, that it's okay that we can have conversations and entire relationships with people who we feel as if we're very close to, but are we really, you know, do we really, know them there's there's a distance that separates us can we still experience true friendship and love Uh, maybe we can yeah we can well we're gonna have to continue this conversation because i want to talk to you about let's highlight some more success stories and let's let's weave technology into it and let's get some more people you know feeling encouraged that that these uh dehumanizing you know things can be overcome and that we can raise the next generation different um Hey, before we go, another thing, um, again, changing gears on you, I I always love to talk to the folks with families on um, any tips or hints when it comes to balancing the the need for progress and maybe the the drive to achieve versus like coming home and changing the diapers or coming home and like when you're at home, just being home or do you have any tips for turning it off? Hmm. Or is your or is your life just you know, more balanced than mine? Ha! Huh, yeah, right. No, I I think like, um, you know, I feel like, in a way, like I used to think that suffering came about because of the many lives that we leave that we that we lead rather end to end. We don't live one life. We live many lives stacked end to end, you know, but actually I feel like maybe potential for suffering is even greater with the various lives that I lead simultaneously when I'm out on the road, when I'm back at home with my kids, how do I bring these together? And that's a real, that's a real struggle. Something that I think about a lot, but I will say that maybe in some fractured, beautiful way, I've learned how to embrace this quality of duality. Um, 
that when I when I can come home, and my wife and I have begun basing our family in a very out of the way place um, on a farm. In fact, um, and you know, I wake up and all I see, I look out and I see mountains everywhere, and I can go to my studio and my kids are coming in and out. And when I'm at home, I am, I don't really do much of anything else. I just, I can focus on being a dad. So, so I guess it, it it has allowed me, I mean, you know, I, once they go to sleep, you know, I'm out in my studio working and, you know, or if, if my older daughter's at school, you know, I, I, I find plenty of time to work, but I can really focus on being a dad when I'm out here. So maybe some, in some way, like this, I, I think that's a huge embracing secret of this duality, which I, which you kind of stumbled on. I mean, you really didn't plan it. It just sort of started to happen. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe actually that has been my, my, uh, my secret, but you know what? It's not going to work for anybody else. Yeah. It works for me, but, but, uh, you well, know, I, I think, think it's it also, an interesting concept though, to think about environments. I mean, you moving from, did you go from Manhattan to Montana is, or did you go anywhere in between or how did that? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm in, I'm in New York two or three times a month you okay. know? and I'm on the road traveling. And most of the cities that I travel to, to play concerts are, are bigger cities than, than, than out here in, in Montana. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> but I, think I do feel like interesting about really have something to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like intentional environment, you know? And maybe maybe not everybody can get to a farm, but are there things we can do about our environment, especially as a parent, right? Of like how much yeah. television is going to be, how much screen time is going to happen versus how much FaceTime is going to happen. Like, yeah. I don't mean yeah, yeah. Apple FaceTime, I mean human FaceTime, right? Understood. Yeah, understood. And uh, it's it's interesting to think about, you know, can you, you know, could could others of us engineer our environments to be you know, more beneficial to the things we think we say we care about most. Well, yeah. Create the space, you know, try to create the space both, um, in your mind and, and, and physically to, uh, to really have the opportunity to, to have that personal time, to have that face time, to, to be close to the people you love and who need you and who need your love. That's great. I feel like that's a great place to stop. What do you think? You know what? We can stop and we'll we'll continue sometime too, Jess, for sure. That'd be great. Stop well, pre- for now. For- yeah, yeah. I appreciate you making so much time for us today. That was a pleasure. That was really uh, that was great. I'm glad to have done this. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before you go, my friends know about my total obsession with Mexican food, especially a shredded beef chimichanga or seared steak nachos. But this Cinco de Mayo, when you're enjoying some amazing tacos. Remember to check out the new funny videos that will be launching on PasswordDay.org. Also, we hope you'll take the time to learn about the aftercare orphanage Child Rescue is helping build in Cusco, Peru at iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. 
All right, now, listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.